Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, when he built a city, he named this, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play lyre and, and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, and he called, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so Christopher Browning, he's a professor emeritus. He was formerly a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, and Christopher Browning, like his area of special, his special, his specialty in studying history was particularly the history of Nazi Germany and more specifically the history of, of the Holocaust. How did Nazi Germany, like how did the Holocaust, you know, the, the murder of, murders of millions of, of Jews and Poles and others, how did that happen? And uh, he wanted to, as he was trying, he wanted to zoom into, in, in a, he wrote a book where he tried to zoom in on particularly the, the, the men who were on the front lines of committing these atrocities. Not the folks who were way behind in the background, bureaucrats pushing orders with, on paper, but actually the, the men who were on the front lines committing the atrocities, um, putting people in cars to, to go to work camps. What was going on with them? Why, how did these men become like this? He wrote a book to explore this. So to explore it, he, he looked at one particular company of men. Um, and uh, they were called, they were the Police Battalion 101, um, which, which was, a, was a real actual unit in World War II. Um, these are reservists. Um, so they weren't, actually, they weren't actually young enough to be like serving on the front lines fighting the Soviet Union or fighting in the West against uh, Britain and the United States. Uh, so they were, they were middle-aged men. Um, they were from working or middle, lower middle class. Uh, they were dock workers, truck drivers, uh, construction workers, machine operators. Some were waiters. Uh, some were salesmen. Some were teachers. Uh, some were office workers. Um, and it's worth saying that these, these men, they, they, they wouldn't, you wouldn't have picked them out if you looked at like, the politics of Germany at the time. These men wouldn't have been like the, the big Nazi flag wavers, the big Nazi enthusiasts. Um, this is what Browning says. He says, most came from Hamburg. Um, Hamburg was, it was, it was considered to be one of the cities in Germany that was the most opposed politically to the Nazis. Um, it was one of the, it was perhaps the, the most progressive city um, in Germany. Um, so these men were from Hamburg. He said, most men, most came from Hamburg, by reputation one of the least Nazified cities in Germany, and the majority came from a social class that had been anti-Nazi in its political culture. These men would not seem to have been a very promising group from which to recruit mass murderers on behalf of the Nazi vision of a racial utopia, to, a racial utopia, utopia free of Jews. They wouldn't have been the ones you would have picked. And yet it was these men, this reserve battalion, when the guy who received an order in 1942 to go to a small town in Poland and round up 1,500 Jews and either deport them or kill them, 
And they were even given an option at the last minute by their commanding officer that said, if this is, sounds like too much for you, if this sounds too dark, you don't have to go do it. But they still participated. They still completed their orders and committed these atrocities. And that was the first. And they did more things. And these, these men were interviewed after the war, and they talked about how they were shocked the first time they were doing things, and then it just became more and more normal. Things became less and less shocking as it went on. So Browning ceased to answer, why do they do this? Were they, was it because they were, they were racists or like propagandized as racists? And he says, that was the, and Browning, he wrestles with the history of it, and he's like, that's definitely part of it. You know, that Nazi propaganda was washing over everyone. There, was, there were like social visions that would align with this. Um, but at the same time, they were middle-aged men, like the, the folks who were the most susceptible to Nazi propaganda were particularly young, middle-class men. Um, so these, they were kind of outside that group. Or were they just obeying orders? Was it because of the question of authority? And Browning says, kinda. I mean, he, he, there are examples of men who disobeyed orders in Germany and were in, in war trials after the war, and all those who disobeyed these exact kind of orders, were, there's no record of them being punished. Um, uh, by, by the, 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 their commanding officers. So his final answer that he arrives at, that he thinks is like the strongest argument for trying to see why they did this, was conformity. And it's a chilling answer. These men, they just wanted to be respected by their peers. They just wanted to be advancing their careers. And they just wanted to do what was right according to the views being expressed in their society at large. So the, the title of this book is Ordinary Men. These were ordinary men just trying to be good people. And he, the final words of this book is a question the, the, the historian asks us. He says, if the men of Reserve Police Battalion 101 could become killers under such circumstances, what group of men cannot? It's a chilling question. In the passage we just read, and in ordinary men, in ordinary men, this book I'm talking about, there's cautionary tales here. The natural way of humanity, after sin, is towards descent into hatred and even into murderousness. This is what we see in this passage. Consider um, the descent that we've seen over the past few chapters, um, as we've been studying Genesis. Um, Adam and Eve, they take, they, it's a sin of desire, right? They, take of, they eat of, a, of the tree that God told them not to eat. Disobey God's commandment. Consider the next level out. It's almost like a ripple, like a rock landing in a lake, and the ripple is getting bigger and going out. In the next generation, we have Cain, who murders his brother out of envy. Getting bigger. And now this is seven generations after Cain. Seven is the biblical number of fulfillment. What is the fulfillment of the line of Cain? It's Lamech singing a, song, uh, singing a song of boasting about killing someone for doing nothing to him and threatening to kill anyone else who would get in his way. There's just, there's a sin of desire, there's murder, and then there's, mur there's murder beyond what, we're, what we can even imagine. This is the descent, and this is the way of the city of man. And did you notice that, that, that uh, Cain is the first one who founds a city. This is the first city in the Bible. Uh, you, you saw that in, 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 uh, in verse 17. When he built a city, Cain built a city. He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. This is the first city of the Bible. Um, 
And, and there's, a, there's an, an, an ancient uh, church theologian, his name was Augustine, he's from North Africa, and he looked at this passage and he used this passage to be like, in, in the Bible there are two, fundamentally two cities. There's the city of man and there's the city of God. The city of man is characterized by the descent that I've been talking about, ordinary men, the descent of this line into chaos and murder and sin. Um, so there's the city of man and there's the city of God. I'm going to talk about those two cities this morning, um, kind of through the, lens of, through the lens of this passage. And we're going to get to how God, how we're all members of the city of man, whether we like it or not. And that city is, is, curved, against, is curved towards sin. But also God calls us to follow Jesus. And by Jesus, we are made citizens of a new city, the city of God. And he calls us, Jesus invites us to be pilgrims those going to a holy place, going to the city of God as we walk in the city of man. So the city of man. So first off, we've got the city of man. Um, so uh, uh, Augustine, that, that theologian I just referenced a minute ago, uh, he crafts the distinction between these two cities. Um, he's looking at these verses. He's also living in a time. Uh, he lives in, um, Augustine lived in a great empire, uh, the Roman Empire uh, in the 300s, early 400s. Um, he writes this bo- uh, the book about this at the, near the end of his life. And it's this great decaying empire um, that's um, undergoing massive social change, economic downturn, um, and military decline. And in his lifetime, the city of Rome, uh, which was like the center of the the world for almost a millennium and for the the, the Western world, it actually is sacked um, by Germanic barbarians. And he's writing this book at a time where the city, like the... The, all the big structures, the big city around him is clearly being revealed to be unstable. So he directs his, his audience's gaze towards the different city. I don't know if that sounds applicable to us at all today. If it does, sounds applicable to you. Um, it certainly does to me. And Augustine writes that these, 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 describing these two cities, these two cities, the city of God, man and the city of God, they're created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. And the heavenly city, by love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. In fact, the earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. Um, so the city of man, he goes on, but he also talks about how the city of man is mixed. It's not unambiguously terrible all the time in all ways. It's not utterly bad. Um, and we can see that some in this passage, right? Where we see this, this city founded and we see this decline um, and sin getting worse and worse and, and mankind getting worse and worse. But at the same time, there are these signs of good things popping up, even in this corrupted city. Look with me at, at verse 20. Um, Ada bore Je- Je- uh, Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. This guy was, he was at the head of a revolution in farming and ranching. Started, cl- started to p- p- pave out a way for, for li- there being livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, who was the father of those who played the lyre and the pipe. Musicians came from this line, the first musicians. And then next is Tubal Cain, who's named after Cain himself. But he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, which I would take to mean hammers and all good fine things, you know, sickles for cutting and farming, um, but probably also some instruments that would have been better not being invented too, like swords and spears. The city of man is mixed. Great works are done. You know, Augustine is looking at Rome, and he, there's a lot to commend about the history of Rome. It's, it's law and it's philosophy. It's a mixed, there, there's a mixed legacy in the city of man. But at its core, 
the city of man is, uh, it's curved in on itself. Um, Martin Luther, uh, who was writing in the, in, in the 1500s in Germany, um, he, a reformer, he, he came up with this great phrase to describe how sin fundamentally works in corrupting each of us and in corrupting the world, where he makes, he, 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 he has this Latin phrase called curvatus in se, curvatus in se, which basically just means curved in on oneself. Um, that the world, ourselves, that we're not neutral, the city of man is not neutral, but it's bent towards evil. It makes me wonder if, bent towards selfish gain, towards evil in, in the slightest with each and everything, which it makes me wonder, like, were these lyrian pipes, were they used to sing this, this, this terrifying song of Lamech? Were they an accompaniment? And we can see more of this, this curving into oneself, the city of man, this decline, particularly in the character of Lamech in verse, particularly his song. And well, we see more than, more than just his song in verse, verse 23, but in early verse 19, um, we see that like this, this decline of man, we see two, two, two major things that are going on with it. It's, I mean, in, Ge in Genesis, there's, there's this like, so much of, of these early chapters of Genesis is like, it's masculinity, it's men gone awry. Um, and we see that come to, in its full flowering here in this passage. Um, in, verse in verse 19, it tells us that Lamech took two wives. It sees that this is the first polygamist in the Bible. Um, two chapters earlier in Genesis 2, God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Not wives, but wife. Um, and the two, shall the two shall become one flesh. Not three, not four. The two shall become one flesh. And, and Lamech defies this order. And he takes, two, he takes two wives instead of just, just one. Um, and, he, and you can see how this, and, this, and if you keep reading through the rest of Genesis, there's a, a Hebrew scholar, he's, a, a, he's a, named Robert Alter. He's, he's really one of the, the leaders in, he, in knowing about Hebrew narrative um, in the academy. And he says, like, if you read through the book of Genesis, you can see that polygamy is just a disaster. It's a disaster. Like, so many of, like, the conflicts... And things that go wrong in Genesis come out of polygamy, come out of this, this passage here. And what do we see in this, in, in, in this song? So he has these two wives, and this song is one of domination and violence, of, of threatening. With this polygamy, we see, we see oppression of women. Oppression of women and disordered sexuality go hand in hand in this passage. We see also that he's bent towards violence. Look at verse 23 with me again, this song he sings. He says, he threatens his, his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. And then he says this line, he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So that line, a young man for striking me, is actually a, a bit of a gentle translation. It actually, uh, other translators put it as, I, he, he's like, a, I killed a boy for bruising me. He's really emphasizing that some, that, some, someone who was weak did a very little thing to me, and I killed him. He glories in violence. And he, he, then he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. This is referring to what we studied last week, where God, uh, you know, Cain murders his brother Abel, and then God um, curses him to be a wanderer on the earth. And, and Cain is like, this punishment is more than I can bear. Uh, I, if anyone sees me, they'll kill me. And God says, not so. I'm going to put a mark on you. And, and everyone, any, so anyone, when they see that mark, if they harm you, whatever they do to you, it'll be sevenfold worse for them. I will work vengeance, God says to Cain. Lamech takes this, 
And what he does in this is he says, you know, if God would avenge someone sevenfold for hurting Cain, I will avenge myself 77-fold if anyone touches me. He puts himself in the position of God as the one who meets out justice. Um, but it isn't justice at all, of course. It's vengeance. Um, he utters vengeance. He puts himself in the place of God. So we have, in, we have from in Adam and Cain in Lamech, we have cowardly men. We have bloodthirsty men. You know, Adam is the one who blames his wife for things that have gone wrong. And then we have, we have Lamech, the bloodthirsty man. Sin is manifested in these early chapters with men in passivity and patriarchy. It's both. And we see like this, this lie that has cropped up in the city of man. And this lie, the lie of sin, is that the two sexes interest, men and women, that their interests are fundamentally against each other instead of for one another. When actually God created the world so that the flourishing of women would be to the glory of men and the flourishing of men would be a, a blessing to women. That order is, is really disturbingly broken. So we've been talking about the city of man, the city that Cain has founded. Um, it's not utterly bad, but it's curved in on itself, curvitus in say. It's bent towards sin. It gets worse and worse on its own. And at the, the city of man, again, drawing from Augustine's terminology here, we all live in the city of man, every single person sitting in this room. We don't really have a choice. You know, for Augustine, it was the Western Roman Empire. It was his region of North Africa. It was the city he was in, Hippo Regius. For us, it's America. It's Philadelphia. It's Instagram. Your family. It's Twitter. You know, Lord have mercy. And everyone can say, like, oh, the city of man is definitely Twitter. You know, things naturally bent towards towards hatred of one another. Our neighborhoods, our bank accounts, these things after sin are naturally bent, curvitus in say, bent in on, on ourselves towards selfish gain. Um, and also, by the way, if you're here and you're like, oh gosh, so this is a guy who's, this is, a, this is one of those church times where the guy at the front is just railing on everything that happens outside of church and how bad everything is. Um, actually, I would say quite the opposite. Uh, the, the city of man, it's also inside of us. It's also a part of us, for us who are here in this room. It's not, we are naturally wired to love it to love its glories over the glory and enjoyment of God. We are not, each of us, we're not individuals who can just take ourselves out of the city of man um, and critique it any more than we can, that, than like a fish can critique water. It's part of us. It's our default, the default setting for us is to glory in the city of man. And that's where we get cautionary tales like, ordinary men, the one that I opened with. If we're just seeking conformity, just seeking to please our peers, just seeking to advance our careers, just seeking to do what is right according to the views of our society at large, those things are naturally bent in a way that leads to descent into chaos and evil. And that's the city of man, the city of Cain. Next, I want to talk about the city of God. Um, the, the, end, the end of the passage here in verse 25 and following, we see this final note of hope. Another child is born to Adam and Eve. Um, the, and Eve names this child, and this naming seems to be an act of worship. 
Eve names the child out of thanksgiving to God, names him uh, Seth, which means God appointed or God granted. It's like a note of thanksgiving um, for in the midst of so much tragedy, sorrow, pain, and her own, their own sin. Adam and Eve, they, there's a, they're in this, with this new child, there's this sense of turning back to the Lord. There's a new line of hope. Um, and from this, in particular in the Gospel of Luke, there's, there's uh, the author, Luke goes to pains to show that Jesus Christ was descended from the line of Seth, the line that we see right here. Um, and Jesus, the son of hope, the son of Seth, across many generations, um, Jesus, unlike Cain, he didn't found a literal city in his years walking on the earth. Uh, he also was a wanderer upon the earth um, in a way that Cain wasn't, actually. Cain thought he would be, but he ended up finding a city. Jesus actually was a wanderer on the earth. He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lie his head. Jesus, in a lot of ways, was a pilgrim, uh, which that's not a word we use very much. Um, I, when I thought of pilgrims, I thought of like the mythology, you know, being taught as kids about you know, the pilgrims coming across the sea to learn how to make a Thanksgiving meal with Squanto. Um, we called them, I don't know why we called them pilgrims, um, but um, the, uh, a pilgrim is one who is on a journey toward a holy place, who's looking towards rewards that aren't immediately coming to him. And so, so was Jesus. He walked by faith in his Father's will, seeking not his own glory, but the glory of his Father, seeking instead the kingdom of God. Or another way of putting the kingdom of God, the city of God. And Jesus, think of the, the baptism that for, for Johnny Pat here, about um, how just as the, the water of baptism washes, you can wash dirt off of our skin, Jesus, Jesus, by his blood, by his death for us, he washes us of sin. He, he cleanses us of our sin. He frees us. And here's the wild thing. It's in our name, liberty. Jesus actually, actually liberates us, frees us from the city of man, from the city of Cain, the city of Lamech. The dominion of sin is no longer primary for those who have faith in Jesus, who are united to him. Our primary citizenship, your primary citizenship, should you choose to have faith in Christ, it is moved from the city of man to the city of God. Now, while we're in the city of man, we just have temporary visas. We're here for a time. This isn't our ultimate home. But our passport, the seal on the passport, is for the city of God. It's for the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the city, that, the city that we look to one day. And we in Jesus, we are pilgrims. We are following him on the way to the city of God. Um, and Jesus' ways, as we look at his life, they're the opposite in so many ways to the city of man, to the city of man we see in, these passage, in this passage. Um, and as citizens of a different city, with a different passport, he calls us to live differently than those who live in the way that the ways of the world is naturally geared around us. But think about what, how Jesus, he directly challenges Cain, he directly challenges Lamech that, that we see in these passages. Consider how Lamech is a polygamist, how he takes two wives instead of one. Jesus, multiple times, uh, quotes back Genesis 2 against his opponents. Jesus is the one who, who draws our eyes back to saying that uh, in the beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Um, Jesus calls men to a different path, not the passive path of Adam, not the patriarchal path of Lamech, 
But Jesus models a way of leading and loving sacrificially for the flourishing of women. Think about how Lamech speaks of 77-fold vengeance. Jesus very intentionally, very intentionally, contradicts Lamech in this passage, where Jesus is asked by his disciples, how often should I forgive my, en- for, forgive my enemies? And one disciple was like, should I do it seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven times. Where um, Lamech says, my vengeance will be 77-fold. Jesus says, forgive your enemies 77-fold. Do you see how if we follow this pilgrim to this new city, as we look towards life after death as our primary place of citizenship, as the New New Jerusalem is our primary place of citizenship, if we follow him and his contradiction of these ways, do you see how someone who is heavenly-minded could actually do our world a lot of good? You know, there's this saying, and it doesn't come from nowhere. There's this saying that, you know, Christians can, can sometimes be so heavily minded that they aren't any earthly good. And there's something to that. That, that can be true. There is a good critique there. But I do think like the, like the, the most of that critique is exactly, is exactly wrong. I think it's exactly wrong. That if we're seeking to live in a way um, that is a preparation for us coming before God's face one day, we actually will be more of a blessing to those who are around us. Um, the Bible ends with a city begins here, this is the first city, but it ends with a very different city in the last chapters of the Bible. The new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven to earth for the restoration of earth. And in this city, Jesus is the king, the Lamb of God is the king. Um, God is present, God is so present that the sun isn't even needed. His light covers all in all. There's true peace, not just a tranquility that's, that's papering over, over conflict. And tears are wiped away from every eye in this new city including the tears of those who suffered under, the, under the, the hands of men like Lamech. Those tears are wiped away. And the city of man, it's part of us, um, but it's not for those of us who have faith in Christ. It's not our ultimate home. Our home is in God. Our souls, we will never find rest in the accomplishments and the accolades of the city of man. We will never find rest, ultimate rest, in having great careers. We will never find rest, ultimately, in being the best parents or in indulging all the pleasures of the world or in figuring out all truth. Our souls will never find rest in finding and marrying the perfect person. Our souls will ultimately never find rest in saying all the right things and being the best possible ally to whatever vulnerable people group is out there. We will not ultimately find rest in being accepted by our peers. We will also ultimately not find rest in just sitting back and being comfortable and apathetic. We may find reprieve. We may find some coping mechanisms for our sorrow and our pain. Maybe even in those things we'll find some good God-given joy. Remember, the city of man is its a mixed thing. There are traces of his goodness in all these things but our souls will not find rest in them. And ultimately, our souls are restless until they find rest in God and in his city. Jesus says this, 
He says, in the world, you will have troubles. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.